This is Illinois in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. I'm Greg Bishop. Coming up, we'll review the top stories from the past week about the legal challenge over Governor J.B. Pritzker's COVID-19 orders more than a year in, and the order's impact on health and education, the gubernatorial race, and more. Plus, we'll get commentary from the Center Square publisher Chris Krug and executive editor Dan McCaleb about vaccine passports, a delay in reopening Illinois, and a proposal to require fingerprints for firearm owner identification cards. That's ahead with Illinois in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. I'm Greg Bishop. Hi, this is Chris Krug, publisher of The Center Square. Our team produces the nationally read and recognized news stories at TheCenterSquare.com, the country's fastest-growing, nonprofit, nonpartisan, state-focused news and information site. We deliver essential Illinois news and information with a taxpayer sensibility through reporting that's easy to understand and easy to share with your friends and family. We know that you want to get a quick update on what's happening at the state capitol in Springfield and across the state. Our team writes short, impactful stories that help all Illinoisans understand what's going on in their home state. We know that you need information that allows you to understand what the governor and your local legislators are doing. Our team covers government and the activity of elected officials so you can make sense of how their activity affects you and your family and your future here in Illinois. We know Illinois because we live in Illinois. Get the news that you need to know at thecentersquare.com. That's thecentersquare.com. Thecentersquare.com. This is Illinois Focus, powered by thecentersquare.com. I'm Greg Bishop. Here are the top stories from the past week. An attorney for Fox Fire Restaurant in Geneva suing Governor J.B. Pritzker over his continued COVID-19 orders expects a judge to allow the case to move forward. Tuesday, Sangamon County Judge Raylene Grishow heard virtual oral arguments on whether to dismiss the case. The governor's attorneys made the motion and said the way to remedy the differences over policy decisions is by voting in the next election. Fox Fire attorney Greg Earl Wednesday said it's troubling that 35% of small businesses have closed since the pandemic. And I think, you know, the governor's uh, argument that just wait till I'm out of office is is horrific, to be honest with you. Pritzker's attorneys also said separation of power should keep the courts out of such decisions. But Grishow said the orders seem never ending and the questions about whether suspension of civil liberties was justified. Earl said that signals she'll allow the case to proceed. When civil liberties are being taken over and, and you know, uh, withdrawn from pe- from people in society, you have a right to stand up and say, hey, this isn't right. And I thought Judge Grishow, when she said that to the state and they didn't really have a, a response to that, um, I thought that was pretty telling. Grishow told the governor's attorneys she reviewed CDC guidelines and didn't find anything suggesting actions of blanket restaurant closures as the governor ordered. There are still orders limiting capacity to 50%. Grishow had previously ordered documents justifying the governor's orders be handed over to Foxfire. Earl said those documents raise more questions than they answer. Online, it says, you know, long-term care facilities is about a percent of COVID cases per the state of Illinois. Internally, it's about 40%. So there, there's some misrepresentations going on here to the public, and I think the public needs to hear that. Grishow is expected to issue her ruling on whether to dismiss the case by April 13th. Earl said they're looking for a bench trial. As political leaders across the country consider whether to implement so-called vaccine passports allowing people to digitally prove their COVID-19 status, some are raising the alarm. Last week, Governor J.B. Pritzker was open to the idea of the private sector requiring so-called vaccine passports for people wanting to participate where crowds are gathering. You don't have to show that to them. You don't have to be 
to go to that venue or be engaged in that activity either. NAACP Illinois Conference President Teresa Haley said getting the vaccines an individual choice, something everyone has to consider alongside their health professionals. But she said some people can't get the shot for medical reasons or for religious reasons and requiring vaccine proof to take in normal society crosses the line. I think that's an invasion of privacy. I think that's a civil rights violation. Some argue it could be up to the private business to dictate such requirements, but Electronic Frontier Foundation Director of Engineering Alexis Hancock said such systems will marginalize various populations further and create haves and have-nots if implemented beyond international travel. To go in and have to prove that you're vaccinated with your smartphone to get a cup of coffee or to access public services we're afraid that it's going to create a digital barrier on people and create more concern than necessary in getting the economy open. Officials in New York have released their version of a vaccine passport system. Florida's governors expected to issue executive orders prohibiting such requirements, even in private business. Early estimates show tens of thousands of Illinois' public school students didn't show up for class last fall. Cole Lauterbach has more. Most of the state's public schools were entirely remote learning last fall, with more than 900,000 students learning at a computer screen. A report from the Illinois State Board of Education found that an estimated 35,000 students weren't in attendance as of October 1st. Melissa Figuera with Advance Illinois said most of the no-shows were focused in one age group. Kindergarten through third grade saw the steepest declines by far, as much as 20 to 50 percent in some areas which is especially concerning in light of how important those early years are for children's development. This could be true to many parents of kindergarten-age students holding them back a year if they weren't six years old by the 1st of September, which is the compulsory age for K-12 schools. I'm Cole Lauterbach. Despite 2,300 pages of documents a state senator demanded from the Pritzker administration, there are still some unknowns about the deadly COVID-19 outbreak at the LaSalle Veterans Home. Morris Republican State Senator Sue Rezin requested 30 days' worth of documents for when the COVID-19 outbreak began in early November. Her staff took a week to go through more than 2,000 pages. One email from the home's administrator on November 2nd acknowledged an outbreak, Rezin said, but there are still unknowns. The list of documents we were sent in this FOIA does not explain what happened between November 2nd and between, you know, November 12th when the on-site visit happened. Resin expects to file more records requests with the Pritzker administration. That 10 days where the administration did not act at all to stop or slow the spread of COVID means the difference between veterans living and veterans dying. The administration hasn't elaborated on the issue beyond it being investigated by the inspector general. Lawmakers in Springfield heard testimony Tuesday on the spike in opioid deaths in Illinois. Kevin Bessler reports. Representatives from healthcare, judicial, and social work fields told the Senate Health Care Access and Availability Committee that the problem has become a crisis, including Dr. Leslie Wise with the Illinois Department of Public Health. At this time, the number of lives lost to the opioid epidemic in 2020 is 2,872. This is a 30% increase from 2019. Wise added that the drug fentanyl is behind a lot of those deaths. DuPage County State's Attorney Robert Berlin says in most cases, his office does not put drug users behind bars. Putting drug users in jail or prison is truly a waste of resources and we try and get them into treatment. Legislation has been introduced which would provide protection from prosecution to people seeking medical attention for an opioid overdose. I'm Kevin Bessler. 
A measure Republicans say could increase the state's health care costs by up to $12 billion is poised for Governor J.B. Pritzker's desk. House Bill 158 cleared the Illinois Senate last week, previously passing the House. Democratic State Senator Maddie Hunter said the measure will make Illinois a trailblazer. Community health worker certification, maternal and infant mortality, mental and substance abuse treatment, hospital reform, and medical implicit bias. Addressing these areas will dramatically alter the structure of our health care system for the better. Republican State Senator Steve McClure said there are good things in the bill, but the state's broke and can't afford the price tag of 5 to $12 billion. The $7.5 billion from the recent stimulus uh, is going to help us quite a bit, but we're still in very rough financial shape right now. Funding for the expanded programs would be subject to appropriation. Democratic State Senator Jacqueline Collins said the bill was necessary. I just want to say we cannot not afford it. How do you put a price tag on somebody's life and the quality of life? In promoting State House Republicans' Reimagine Illinois platform Thursday, State Representative C.D. Davidsmeyer said the state can't afford more programs. Instead, the state should foster job growth and prioritize spending on current obligations, he said. They promised an, uh, a health care funding bill that would promise an additional 5 to $12 billion. You know, we have to get back to the things that we've already promised. David Meyer said the state can't even properly fund its pensions or backlog bills, let alone expand new programs. The measure could be sent to the governor any day. Members of Illinois' congressional delegation differ on President Joe Biden's $2 trillion spending plan revealed this week. To pay for the $2.3 trillion plan, the Biden administration is looking to increase federal corporate income taxes by $2 trillion. Naperville Democratic U.S. Representative Bill Foster said in a statement he's excited about the proposal to replace lead pipes, revive the semiconductor supply chain, and upgrade power transmission lines to allow for more renewables. Taylorville Republican U.S. Representative Rodney Davis worried the bill will harm the state's and nation's infrastructure for energy. If we're going to go to a more ubiquitous electric vehicle, electric vehicle fleet on our roadways, we have to understand how those get charged. They get charged by baseload generating capacities. We don't have the capacity in wind and solar to run our economy here in central Illinois let alone the American economy on. Biden's plan includes subsidies of tens of billions of dollars in manufacturing supply chains for electric vehicles and charging stations. Davis said most of the spending isn't on infrastructure and seems more focused on changing the nation's energy grid to things like wind and solar. A lot of it's going to push what I would consider some Green New Deal policies that could have an adverse effect on how, how many jobs are in our communities at plants like CWLP, plants like the Clinton nuclear facility. Davis also said during a pandemic and the subsequent recovery, it's not the time to increase taxes on small businesses to achieve ideological goals. A third candidate's jumped into the race for Illinois governor. Illinois businessman Gary Rabine announced his bid Tuesday. He focused on reversing population decline by creating jobs, lowering property taxes, and, quote, serving families. We can blame everyone else for our problems. We can leave like so many others. We're together. We can begin our journey. What, what do we say? We can begin our journey paving the way to stay. Rabine joins a field with former state Senator Paul Schimpf and state Senator Darren Bailey. The Republican primary is March 2022. He also echoed criticism the other candidates offered of Pritzker. I will never shut down our economy and ruin thousands of businesses as J.B. Pritzker has. 
Pritzker is yet to announce he'll run for a second term, but in March, the billionaire gave his campaign $35 million. Republicans don't have near that millions. Through the end of the first quarter of this year, Bailey had half a million on hand, 325000 of which has been donated in the first three months of this year. Schimpf brought in 130000 more in the first quarter of this year for a total of $190,000 on hand. Ray Bine announced that he gave himself $110,000. So I pledge to you today that if I'm not the candidate, I will work hard to support our nominee. I hope every Republican candidate will join me in this pledge. Bailey and Schimpf said that they will support whoever is the Republican nominee. Those are the top stories from the past week from Illinois. Find more online at thecentersquare.com. Coming up for Illinois in Focus, commentary from the Center Square publisher Chris Krug and executive editor Dan McCaleb. This is Illinois in Focus, powered by thecentersquare.com. I'm Greg Bishop. everyone and welcome back to the Illinois in Focus podcast. This is commentary powered by the Center Square here in Illinois. I'm Chris Krupp, publisher of the Center Square, joined by my friend and colleague Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square. Dan, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Some new issues to talk about this week. Um, controversial new issues to talk about. Um, I'm sure we'll dive right in, but uh, some very gray areas involved in this um vaccination passport topic. Yeah, I was going to say, before we proceed, I'm going to have to take a look at your papers and make sure that you and I, you know, could actually have this conversation. So turn over the documents. Uh, yeah, this is the, the, we've entered into this new phase of conversation around COVID as if um, we'll ever run out of things to talk about uh, related uh, to uh, the coronavirus. But we've reached a point now where some people are getting vaccinated. The economy's turning back on. Um, actually, high numbers of people are getting vaccinated, not just in Illinois, but around the country. And the question becomes, how do I prove for the purpose of allowing myself into larger venues, events, or back to work fully, or whatever the case might be, because there's a myriad application here, uh, is the passport the right way to go? Is it the wrong way to go? Does it infringe on people's rights? Uh, is it one more uh, element or one more instrument uh, of government control? Let's talk about it as it pertains to Illinois. Of course, Governor J.B. Pritzker seems to be a big advocate uh, for the passport approach, um, which I probably makes some people uh, on the opposite side of the fence uh, raise their hackles. <laughs> so let's start there. Right. So just as you mentioned, just another new quagmire uh, issue that's been opened uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Should people, you, you ask the question, how do people prove? And I think the larger question is, should people have to prove whether Correct. or not they've gotten one of the COVID-19 um, vaccines to be able to attend, for example, a baseball game or a concert that now are being planned at Wrigley Field and other venues um, in Chicago. I see. I saw Guns N' Roses is being booked uh, uh, for this summer. Uh, Chris, I don't know if uh, you've gotten your tickets yet, but make sure you've got your passport ready just in case that does come down. I appreciate um, the heads up on that. Thank you. But but the other side of this too is remember you, you know what I don't think either one either you or neither you or me are 
anti-vax people at all. Um, um, In fact, um, I got my first dose uh, just this past Sunday. I'm happy I've got it. But but the other side of this, too, is remember, these aren't fully approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. They've been approved for emergency use only. So it has not gone through the entire vetting process. And, you know, so I can understand I am not wary of getting the the vaccine, but I can understand that there are plenty of people out there who might be wary of it because it has not yet been fully vetted. They're still conducting studies Mm -hmm. uh, to see effective it is and to see what kind of side effects people suffer. And there have been stories of people suffering certain side effects. Um, It hasn't been around that long. So the question is, should government allow um, uh, individuals, businesses, government agencies to require proof of vaccination to participate in some sort of an event? That's a slippery slope as far as I'm concerned. I do understand the property rights side of it, too. uh, but I, I, there needs to be a much larger conversation about this. No, I, I agree. So, you know, it, it, things that are happening inside of Illinois around the conversation. So for for one, one, the NAACP came out and said, um, we, we don't we don't like this. Um, and then also Joe Sosnowski, who's a Republican legislator from Rockford, He's introducing legislation to get in the way of making any such thing in Illinois mandatory. We've already seen this um, in, in other such places, Ohio, uh, for example, where you know the center square is is uh, up and, and running and, and doing some great things as well. Um, there's legislative action there uh, against uh, the idea of passports. It's being and in, and in Florida, um, you know, of course, and we've covered that as well. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the, the governor in Florida, Center Square wrote about that this past week. Um, he's he's against it uh, either publicly or privately, just says it shouldn't exist. Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, uh, not in complete agreement. They are both Republicans. So this is a fascinating issue. Um, let's bring it back to Illinois, though, and talk about sort of where, where we are with it uh, from a legislative standpoint. And if anything... Uh, is uh, bubbling or moving or has a possibility here. All right. So as you mentioned, from an administrative standpoint, Governor Pritzker said he's open to the idea of allowing um, groups to require vaccination passports to enter that. Um, uh, Representative Sosnowski from Rockford, as you mentioned, has filed legislation. His legislation deals exclusively with the not fully approved um, vaccines. So like the COVID vaccines that have been approved for emergency use only, um, his legislation uh, would ban uh, anybody from acquiring passports uh, for vaccination passports for any, for anyone who for regarding the COVID-19 vaccine because it has right. not been fully approved by the FDA. It would not, for example, uh, Representative Sosnowski's legislation, if it were approved, and it has a long go, way to go before it will be approved, it would not um, uh, deal with things like the flu vaccine or other right. vaccines. That, right. that, or, or measles or mumps or, or anything, anything like, like that. that. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just to be clear that everything that we're talking about is in the context of COVID-19 and the and this particular, uh, or, or any of the particular vaccines that would exist for coronavirus that are all non, you know, they're emergency approved, they're, they're non-tested. And we've been clear about that from the beginning. 
Right. And, and I mean, let, let's just look at certain industries. This is, you, you know, the airline industry, uh, the cruise ship uh, industry, the theme park industry. They've suffered significant losses, um, significant job losses, significant revenue losses over the past year because of this. Um, if these private entities uh, who have pro- who control private property, if they wanted and this goes back to Senator Rubio from Florida's argument, if they wanted to help them save their business and boost um, um, boost the number of customers that they can serve at any given time. If, if, if they wanted to increase their capacity limits by requiring this passport, should they be allowed to? And that's where this, this question, and that's why this question is so difficult. It's, it's some, in some ways it pits individual rights um, against property owners or businesses rights. Um, and I, I just think we, the conversation has not been fully had yet. Um, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, New York, uh, the state of New York and, and Governor Cuomo there are on the road to uh, allowing these passports. I think it's premature to do that at this point. Um, but again, people within the same groups, within the same parties are disagreeing over this thing just because there are so many unanswered questions about how it would work and what the actual infringement level would be on individual rights. Mm hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a fascinating issue, um, and and it's it's you know it's the, maybe the first time in in I would think it's, it's the first time in our lifetime that many of us have even had to think about something like this. Um, the application of uh, of, a, of a passport rule, even if designed, you know, I mean, to 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 allow for the like you had mentioned, I think it's the thing about applicability here, right? I mean, it's so. Um, larger venues more vo- the voluntary action aspect of it i think is 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 interesting right like if i want to go to a bulls game and i want to sit you know in in, in and among a crowd uh, if i can demonstrate that i've been vaccinated uh i think that you know i could be seated in a higher density you know area in the arena maybe have not to say preferential seating um because i don't want to get into all that but to be able to enjoy you know enjoy the game or concert or something like that um, I understand the thinking, um, but at some point, I think we also have to kind of nod to the fact that vaccinations are, are up. People are participating in these voluntary things, having to wear masks. We're going to talk a little bit about because today's opening day. We're taping this on Thursday, April 1st. No April Fool's jokes in our in our um, uh, in our broadcast and podcast today, but we're going to talk about what. Uh, opening day in Major League Baseball is going to look like with producer John later, but to to, to bring it back to the um, to uh, the the idea of of being in a voluntary situation, uh, I think there's there's a lot there's a lot to there's a lot to pull on. There's, right. there's probably and, a lot to pull on here. And and one and one more um, question that's raised about this thing here is for the past year, you and I and many others have been railing ag- against the trustworthiness of the information that we're getting from government. How, let's say, let's say Illinois does set up a passport system. How do we trust the information? We're hearing that there's been a black market now that's opened up um, for these cards that you get when you, when you receive the vaccination, what's supposed to prove uh, that you've gotten the vaccine. How how do you trust that information when people are looking to exploit um, the situation? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, and you and you you don't. Um, so so you're right. So even if we, 
Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> the Pandora's box has been opened. All right. Yeah. So I'll just in in short, I'll just offer this thought. There's no way that this project would work. There's no way that this initiative could actually be foolproof and and, and work. I mean, people are getting vaccinated. The vaccination numbers go up. Um, even if you are in a public place, and this is kind of where I was headed before I had my my Biden moment there. Um, you still have to wear masks, a mask, at least one, <laughs> you know, to be to, to enter an arena. And you've got you've got to sit there. I didn't want to spoil that for the baseball conversation. But, you know, you've got to largely sit still and wear a mask. So, you know, haven't you done all the things that you're supposed to do anyway? Right. And they, you know, limit the number of people that are available or, or that are, are allowed to, to participate, uh, even as a fan and just sit there facing forward. Yeah. So. I, you know, not, as we've talked about it, I I, I agree with you now. I, I've come around now. Well, all right. So let's let, because COVID is all that we can talk about forever here. Let's talk about how we're doing with mitigation in Illinois. I, I've, you and I are both on the road this week, which is interesting because we get a chance to look at, at the, you know, at how other states are doing it. You're in New Mexico. Uh, I am in uh, Tennessee. Uh, I will tell you here in Tennessee, uh, there's just there's just a lot more activity. Uh, people are wearing masks, some of them, not all of them. Um, but you know, I've had the opportunity to go to uh, what would you know amount to be a couple of like Nashville night spots uh, this week, and I think people were acting appropriately. They were not completely jammed to capacity. They were, um, I don't know, maybe fifty percent full, but people were having a good time and they were doing the same things that we would be doing. You know, I would say back in Illinois in terms of like distancing and separation of tables and things such as that. But there were people playing music and, you know, people on the street. It was I mean, it's like almost I'm not going to use the word normal to describe it because it's not what it is. But it, it had some uh, resemblance of what I would recall uh, normal to be. How about for you in the, in New Mexico? Yeah, interesting, um, interesting take. New Mexico is more like Illinois than Tennessee is. We have a Democratic governor and a Democratic legislature here in New Mexico. Uh, we got into town on Wednesday yesterday. Um, uh, went to look for a restaurant to eat. Um, ended up on, near the University of New Mexico campus and uh, went in. Um, and it was remarkable. Um, how similar to Illinois uh, it is. They had every other table was was taped off. You couldn't go in the tables. Uh, you had to. Uh, uh, you can only uh, take your mask off when we were you were seated seated. Excuse me at, at your table where you were eating. Um, uh, staff, if you if you got up to use the restroom and forgot to put your mask on, staff would like run up to you and tell you, "Hey, you need to have your mask on um, in here." So it's not anywhere near close to being. Uh, normal in New Mexico right now. We, mm -hmm. we were walking around uh, near, near the campus um, uh, downtown, and um, even people walking outside, the, not everybody, but the vast majority of people um, uh, had their masks on walking outside. Now, that's something that I've generally stopped doing unless I'm in a crowded area or whatever. Right. Socially distance. Well, here right. you could socially distance. Um, we had our masks off and we were definitely in the mi minority um, of folks without masks, even walking outside in Pleasant. You know, it was probably 63 degrees or so mm -hmm. when we were walking around uh, outside. Um, 
people were most people were still had their mask on. So it's it's you know it's, it's we're still in crazy times. So um, back in Illinois, um, and, and you know this came out on on Tuesday, and Center Square had that. You know the bridge plan, which was the link between. And, and if you have stopped following along or never could follow along because you didn't understand what phase one meant from phase two or three or four or five, don't, don't worry. There's not a test on this. Thankfully, uh, it I don't is. Think I pass it, even though, even though I've been following it, it's so confusing. Well, the, it was made more confusing when the syllabus was updated and there was a bridge that was included between phase four and phase five. And the, the, but the bridge now, to make it just a little bit more confusing, the bridge between phase four and phase five, the drawbridge. Is it open up. or is it down? No, it's up or down? It's up because apparently we got to let some barge go through. I don't okay. know. Maybe it got no. stuck. Yeah, as a, as a as a mitigation to the problem with the Suez Canal, the Illinois bridge plan had to open up to allow cargo to move through under the bridge between phase four and phase five. Uh, and that cargo is that that uh, Dr. Zike and um, and Governor uh, Pritzker don't like the direction of the numbers in the four days in which the bridge plan uh, had existed. Uh, so uh, the bridge is, uh, the bridge is up right now. Um, yeah. You so can't cross it. You can't, you may not, Dan. Citing increased hospitalizations, slight increases in hospitalizations over the past week, they decided to uh, block the bridge plan for moving forward. And the bridge plan, again, it's confusing. Um, there, there were pages and pages of what the bridge plan meant. In some cases, it meant um, um, businesses could increase capacity by like 5% or 10%. Whoop-de-doo, right? Yeah. Um, in, in other instances, it might have been a little bit more significant than that. Than that. But that, that just goes to show the problem with Pritzker's ever-moving goalposts and his plans is people are are you can't follow it because it's too confusing. So people just stop listening. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and okay. And so part of this is fun is fun with numbers, right? I mean, so, you know, the, the we've been hit with these change ups lately. Um, you know, these variants, the, you know, the British variant, the South African variant, things like that, which not really seeing that, that those variants are having any statistical influence on ultimately on deaths. It may they may be um, in causing some increase in hospitalizations, and hospitalizations um, may be up slightly. Um, but you know, here in Tennessee, I picked up a story from a local television station, and I will tell you, if you are looking at the text, the, the the actual written word behind the way that a lot of television, in particular, local television stations will deliver this news. It's straight off of press releases. And then when you read the information, you know, that actually accompanies it, it's delivered first in terms of percentage increases of reports of cases, hospitalizations, and death. If you've had one death, you know, in the, in the last uh, period of say seven days, and then there are two deaths in this new period of seven days, uh, it is factually correct that deaths are up a hundred percent but they're up from number one you know from one to two right so i mean there's you know we're still at 98 plus percent survival rate from from this you know from this 
coronavirus, COVID-19, there, there are some trend numbers that are up and they're up slightly in some states and they're up, you know, maybe a little bit more than slightly in others. I, I think, though, you know, when you talk about the goalposts being moved, it's not necessarily just an Illinois problem uh, in the conversation. In Illinois, it's a problem with what amounts to be the public policy part of it. So the, the, the reporters can write it and, and speak it and broadcast it however they want. But the politicians, the people in government that are trying to lay their fingers and, and, and thumbs on this problem, um, they have to distill this information in a better way than they have. Now would be a great time to get on that. They've been absolutely terrible with regard to making the numbers make sense for people uh, in, in Illinois, I would say that, that that's, a, that's a easily an F score uh, for the Pittsburgh administration. Sure. And just and going back to your example of, you know, an increase from one death to two deaths, it, it, what's, what, what's been so frustrating from the beginning of this, too, is that you don't that, – that doesn't um, count all of the information. Um, the vast majority of people who have died of COVID have, been, have had other – uh, uh, health issues. So right. if that second person that happened to die in, in week two, uh, increasing the death total in, in that specific area by 100%, uh, um, maybe they were 85 years old and maybe they had diabetes and, and other lung issues. Right. What we don't know is what actually caused the death. They're listing it as a COVID-19 death. Maybe COVID-19 was just a small contributing factor and they had other health related issues and then they were you know in their final days anyway and covid just contributed it to it or maybe even just in a very small way we don't have that information we're not getting that information from government when they when they set these new mitigation restrictions um and that's why people are so frustrated uh, yeah. over it well we talked we talked about that uh on the illinois focus uh podcast and broadcast uh, just a couple weeks ago when the 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 coroner, um, right, yeah, from from downstate said, "Hey, uh, hold on a second. I, I I'm looking at these numbers as reported on the IDPH website, and they don't jibe with the numbers that I've submitted." And he raised as a specific case a person who was from his county who, in October, was diagnosed with COVID nineteen. October of 2020, who died in January um, of a drug overdose, completely unrelated to the fact that he had ever had COVID-19. And it was listed as a COVID death in January 2021. And, you know, we brought that issue forward to the Pritzker administration in earnest and said, hey, what's the state doing to effectively audit its own numbers and Governor Pritzker from the podium said maybe that the coroners should do a better job of vetting their own numbers before they send them to the state um, because this is not the state's mistake. This is the local coroner's mistake. Okay. I remember that. And that was uh, to, to just add context. That was Monroe County coroner, Bob Hill, who raised the issue. And in addition to that one a drug overdose death, um, that you specifically uh, mentioned that got listed as a COVID-19 death, even though it was clear it was a drug-related uh, drug death. Um, he said a 
about 10% of his cases, of 10% of the COVID-19 cases from Monroe County listed on the IDPH website as COVID-19 deaths, um, he discovered were not COVID-19. They were other causes. Right. So, so, so at any rate, I mean, we, a little bit of off the track, you know, and just talking about the, the numbers and the sort of the way to process the numbers. But um, one of the things that's happening in, in Illinois right now is would be these you know, oral arguments challenging Pritzker's COVID-19 orders. This has been happening in the background. Um, hasn't been getting a lot of coverage, frankly, from, uh, I would say, the mainstream outlets in Illinois. And I'm not sure why, because, I mean, it's, this is impacting, in theory, not just the citizens, in, you know, in these local markets, but certainly the businesses in these local markets uh, that would be advertisers of these of these outlets. It's kind of a it's a it's a strange, strange thing from a you know, looking at it from a publisher's chair. You know, why wouldn't we be? wanting to not necessarily protect small business and small business interests over the interests of public health, but why aren't they at least being considered equally uh, or considered fairly? So um, what's the deal with, let's talk about this Foxfire case. I mean, and, and bring that forward. Um, and then we'll kind of you know move over into sort of like the conversation around the limitations on uh, executive orders as it pertains to Illinois. Yeah, so Foxfire is a restaurant in Geneva in the uh, uh, suburbs of Chicago. Um, back in October, when um, Governor Pritzker re-closed down res- restaurants, remember, you know, he closed down restaurants uh, in late March, early April at the beginning of the pandemic, and then he started to um, ease restrictions um, during the summer. But then in October, he just flatly on his own authority, not with legislative approval, decided to close restaurants again because the numbers he's looking at, the numbers, uh, the science and data he says he relies on, um, gave him concerns, gave him pause. So he reclosed restaurants after they after everything they went through in 2020. Uh, and and uh, Foxfire, this Geneva restaurant's owner, got sick of it. So was one of he filed a lawsuit um, against the state and Governor Pritzker's restrictions. And he won at the county level. A King County judge said it, uh, these restrictions um, were too much and the governor did not have constitutional authority to do this. So they won at the county level, but the governor's office, of course, appealed it and the governor's office won on appeal and sent it back to the county. So there was another hearing this week uh, on the case and um, the governor Pritzker's office was trying to just get this case dismissed so he just didn't have to deal with it. Um, the legislature doesn't want to deal with it, of course. Um, they've allowed the, uh, the Governor Pritzker free reign to do what he wants during COVID-19, even though it's the legislature's job to make laws, not the governor's job to make laws. Um, so there was a hearing this week, um, and um, uh, Fox Fire's attorneys, there was no ruling, um, but Fox Fire's attorneys were confident based on the judge's questioning in it that the case will uh, be able to go, to go forward. And, and my hope is, is this, this, this goes to trial so we can actually make force someone's hand, make the courts decide, does a single person, the governor of the state of Illinois, have the constitutional authority to single-handedly make law uh, during a health uh, issue? Um, And that's what's been happening uh, in in Illinois. Many other states, legislatures, most other states, legislatures have gotten involved in the process, have pushed back against uh, governors in unilateral authority. That's not the case here in Illinois. The legislature's been mostly hands-off, allowed pressure to do his thing. I would love to see this case go to trial 
Uh, and I'd love to see them force the Governor Pritz here to, to testify uh, and uh, sit on the stand and ask tough, or excuse me, answer tough questions uh, yep. about uh, what gives him the authority to do what he's been doing for over a year now. I don't, you know, it, uh, and I agree with that. I think it would be fa- it would be fascinating, you know, as part of the the this entire process. I mean, I've referred to it a couple of times as Kabuki Theater, um, going back to to last March and you know the beginning of the daily Pritzker briefing, where the legislature just faded completely to the background. The legislature has come forward, um, but but largely, you know, this year in this session. Um, under uh, you know new house speaker uh, Chris Welch to just to build to build bud- the budget buckets. I mean it's the, you know to, to to build the you know the the taxes required to, to fill the gaps in the in the governor's budget. Um, governor Pritzker's never answered to the legislature, you know, which is you know, badly tipped you know t- uh, toward the left. Has never answered to any of the questions uh, of the kind that we're asking. You know, where does his power begin? Where does it end? Um, the legislature just stood by and watched, and 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 seemed to be okay with that. Um, you know, not wanting to participate. You know, in in the governance of the state um, with regard to lawmaking during the most unbelievable year of our collective lives you know they've just honestly they've been spectators to, right. to this entire thing right so you know i guess that to, you know to kind of complete that thought um can you envision i mean you know sincerely envision that governor pritzker would ever sit on a on a witness stand and and explain or be made to explain and that's certainly what he's trying to avoid here um right. You know, it's funny just to bring in another situation. Wisconsin's uh, Wisconsin courts have uh, held on multiple occasions. Um, our neighbors to the north, their courts have held on um, uh, multiple occasions that Governor Tony Evers, that the state constitution does not grant uh, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers unilateral authority to continue extending emergency orders that allow that give them the authority to put restrictions on individuals and businesses they've ruled that multiple times Uh, this week governor pritzker said because um the courts in wisconsin are mostly uh, republican uh dominant uh that those are political decisions but when he gets ruling in when he gets a ruling in in illinois uh, by judges or by courts that are filled with more democrats uh, than Republicans, it's it's the right decision. It's not a political decision. Well, Governor right. Pritzker wants it both ways. I don't. I can't speak to your question about whether or not Pritzker will be compelled to testify on on the stand. I I, I probably think here in Illinois, given the the, the, the courts are mostly uh, Democrat controlled, um, that uh, they will not uh, have the courage to make the force Governor Pritzker to testify. But you can hope. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it would just be interesting to, you know, to get to, to a different level of truth because you could stand at a podium every single day, um, do the dog and pony show, you know, roll out some stats and say, well, and here's why we're doing what we're doing. And oh, by the way, it's just not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, stay home, wash your hands and shut your face. Um, but when you're put onto a witness stand um, and you have to testify, there's a there's a higher order there. There, I mean, you know, your, your accountability to truth is, is in theory and in practice 
and he would know this because he's an, he's an attorney by trade. Um, it's different. So, I mean, I think after a year of, of what's gone on, I think it'd be, it would be fascinating for him to participate in that. Though I don't believe that, um, that that'll ever come to pass. I, I agree with you. Second Amendment in Illinois is always a tenuous conversation, right? right. Um, here, you know, or I should say there, because neither Dan nor I happen to be in the great state of Illinois at this time, as we've shared earlier. I'm in Tennessee and Dan's in New Mexico. We're looking at the world from, from different perspective this week. Um, but in, in Illinois, there's a, a conversation around uh, requiring fingerprinting as a next layer, next level layer uh, to uh, firearm owner identification cards, which are uniquely Illinois in 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 uh, in their nature. Uh, this would double the fees, uh, and and some of the people in the legislature are talking about this says that's going to reduce gun violence. So, before I let you talk about this. <laughs> They still can't process the regular FOID cards, you know, which right. draw from information that that shouldn't be very difficult to, to strain through for the state police. I get it that there's been a surge in people who, who want guns during the pandemic. Um, haven't been able to get those cards processed very quickly. I don't know what the backlog is now, but it's it, my understanding is that it's months, plural months, where this used to be something that could be turned around in 21 days or less. And... Um, so you're talking about doubling the fees and then adding a fingerprinting component to this. Oh. So if you want to be, if you want to have a FOID card, you would have to go down and submit to a, a fingerprint um, sample that would be attached to your FOID card that would then ultimately reduce gun violence somehow, some way. Um, when this story went live last night, I, po I posted it uh, to Facebook because I thought it was a good talker. And my brother, who's a, a retired Secret Service agent and retired uh, trainer at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in, in Georgia, uh, wrote on there, what percentage of gun crimes in Illinois are committed by FOID card holders? It's a terrific story. I don't know the answer to that. Our assumption would be that it's low, that the actual gun and the owner are not one and the same when a gun is used in a gun crime. Right. So um, yeah. we, we, we talked about this in, in, in the pre-show, uh, our pre-show production meeting. And you, the, the problem is, well, it's a very good, it's a valid question, obviously. Um, one, it's difficult to answer because the vast majority of gun violence in the state happens in the city of Chicago, right? We read every weekend, you know, the Chicago's newspapers have a running tally. So many people shot this weekend, so many people killed in gun gang-related gun violence um, this weekend. Unfortunately, Ch Chicago law enforcement has a poor record of um, arresting and prosecuting um, the, the criminals uh, who commit these acts. So uh, when they don't arrest anybody for a gun crime, you can't possibly know if uh, they had a FOID card or not. I think the assumption is, and my, certainly my assumption is, the vast majority of them do not have a FOID card. And it just goes back to the argument of sec Second Amendment supporters. You take away the, the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens to own a gun, um, it's the, only the criminals that will have a gun because they're going to go out and find a gun in the black market uh, any way they want. So the you know law-abiding citizens lose the um, uh, lose the power to protect themselves 
against others. Going going back to this bill that you talked about that would require the fingerprinting and that would do, double the court, uh, double the cost of getting a FOID card. They all, they also want to um, cut the uh, uh, the time in half that the FOID card is good that you have to renew it um, to in, in half to every five years as opposed to every ten years. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're making it more restrictive, making it more difficult on law-abiding citizens. It is a fring- an infringement as far as I'm concerned on, on their Second Amendment constitutional rights. Um, if this were to go through, you know, I would hope hope and expect to see legal challenges to it. So, Dan, one of the you know, one of the sites that I like to take a look at it, check in on uh, on the regular is um, it, it's it's HeyJackass.com. Um, I'm familiar, yeah. It, it, they, I think they do a terrific job of just the the black and white of uh, of the statistics themselves. You know, as it pertains to to gun crimes in the city in the city of Chicago, right? I mean, in the city of Chicago, drives the stats for the state. Um, the policies for the state, you know, the, the way that we live as Illinoisans is, is unduly influenced by what happens in the city of Chicago, because it's, you know, it's really, it's the only city of, not to say the only city of consequence, but it's just such a large city. It's a world city and it happens to be located in our state. So for comparison's sake, you know, and last year was a miserable year with regard to, to gun crime. I mean, almost 800 people were, were murdered in the city of Chicago. Um, in in uh, in March of uh, 2020, 32 people uh, were were killed, and 161 were wounded. In uh, March of 2021, that number is up, like literally 50 percent. That 48 people were killed and 256 were wounded. So these numbers in Chicago are not are they're 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 not good. To bring it back to this idea of 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 void cards and whatnot. Whatever energy is being expelled or or, or you know, put toward you know the idea of of um, gaining more information or a better understanding of of gun owners who go through the process legally, um, if that energy and whatever expense there is against that was put toward more closely identifying how people are getting these guns illegally, the ones that are being used to really for purposes of crime, I think we'd be better off. And and maybe that's like the the the, the most brick headed thing that's come out of my mouth today, because it's it's painfully obvious. But what I mean the politics of this, the optics, the attempt to sort of turn this it turn this issue into something that it's not is galling to legal gun owners. It's galling. It's it's just it's it's so wrongheaded. It's just it's gone. How about this? What if we took the millions of dollars in taxpayer money um, that we're using uh, to hire uh, state police officers to process these FOID cards, and then theoretically in the future to process fingerprints? uh, That's going to probably take uh, more manpower to get done. What if we use those resources and we put them into high crime areas in the state, high gun crime areas in the state, and we uh, we take these criminals off the street? That's That would seem to be a better use of our resources. Well, I don't disagree with anything you just said. And I think it's a nice summary. As we talked about earlier, uh, today is April, April 1st, you know, as we tape this, it's the opening day of the Major League Baseball season. Um, producer John uh, and um, 
Jason Gotch, uh, our sports director, they have a show um, that runs uh, on IRN or is available to IRN affiliates and also a podcast called State Lines where they look at the um, gambling aspect of sports. Uh, I wanted to talk not necessarily about, you know, uh, futures bets on the Chicago Cubs or the White Sox, but what life looks like in a major league ballpark in April 2021. Welcome to the show, John Spataro, producer John. What's happening, buddy? What's going on, gentlemen? Hey, I just I, I'm trying to get you engaged in this conversation about Major League Baseball and what it looks like for the benefit of giving people an understanding. As you mentioned to me, you know, you know the Chicago Cubs and the, and the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, my beloved hometown team, uh, playing today. And again, as we tape this, it's April 1st, Thursday. Uh, and that as of this morning, there are seats available. I, I realize that it's cold, um, but for the pent-up demand of going and watching Major League Baseball in person, um, doesn't seem like it's so demanding right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a little bit of confusion among baseball fans, and really where you see the biggest drop-off in ticket sales comes from the passive fan or the day-of fan or the fans that are just – in the neighborhood and decide to catch a game on a sunny afternoon. And uh, the weather certainly has something to do with it. You know, sitting in Chicago this morning, the game's about to be played in uh, four or five hours. And, um, you know, it, it is not a sunny uh, summer day that you would uh, ideally want when you're going to Wrigley. Uh, but all in all, I think just the rules and the regulations and what to expect uh, when you get to the ballpark is holding people back. And um, we have a little bit of an idea what the Cubs are going to do because they're the first team in Illinois, uh, you know, including the Cardinals just across the river, who are going to be open, opening their season at home. The Cardinals and the White Sox are both on the road. So if you are heading to a game this weekend or anytime soon, it seems like you'll be greeted by, uh, you know, a, a, a slew of new rules um, that might make the experience a little bit different. Mm. So, and, and, and John, not to put you on the spot, are they going to be different? Or, I mean, would the, how different would the rules be, say, for a Cubs or White Sox game versus a St. Louis Cardinal game? Since, I mean, these are all teams that would be relevant in one way or another to uh, Illinoisans. Well, the first thing is that the Cardinals are going to have more fans, at least uh, the first few games here. We know that for sure. The, the Cardinals opened up their capacity to just under one-third uh, just about 33%, whereas the Cubs and Sox uh, originally started with only about 8,000 fans allowed in each of the parks. Uh, that number has since gone up a little bit. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot allowed an additional 2,000 fans. So you should see a five-figure uh, attendance number um, coming in the, uh, in, in the next few weeks, depending on if the weather warms up. And I think the White Sox will get there on their opening day. That seems to be an exciting fan base. Um, you know, and a team that is, certainly deserves a bunch of attention uh, coming off of a hot offseason. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, overall, I think there will be some MLB uh, major guidelines like, um, you know, no, no cash transactions. That seems to be a pretty popular thing around sports right now. Everything's going to be hooked up to an app or hooked up to your credit card. You're not trading cash with a hot dog vendor in the aisle anymore. You have to go to a pretty designated uh, set of concession stands or merchandise stands. Uh, the biggest thing for me, and specifically at, at a place like Wrigley Field um, or Bush Stadium, 
is you can't really walk around the ballpark anymore. And that used to be, uh, you know, worth the price of admission alone, um, you know, especially in a place like Bush that has a bunch of different exhibits and uh, historical elements to it, um, you know, really invites you to just kind of explore that space while you're at the game and up from your seat. Uh, You can't do that anymore. You're really expected to show up uh, at a design time or designated time, enter through a designated gate to get to your seat, keep your mask on. Um, You can get up to go to the bathroom and and buy food or buy a jersey, something like that, but only in a designated area. And then uh, and that's really the extent of your freedom in the ballpark. Hmm. That, uh, that, uh, that doesn't seem like a super great experience. And maybe that is, that has some effect on, uh, on people's willingness to shell out whatever it is they're being asked to pay. My understanding was that the tickets that are made available are not necessarily um, all in the box office. That, that at this point in time, they, that most of the available tickets are being held by third parties what do you know about pricing so far? You know, you know, with the limitations on the on on occupancy. Um, what's the uh, what's the what's the supply and demand curve looking like? Right, and you got to look at places like StubHub now because uh, MLB has a formal arrangement with StubHub to be their uh, third party ticket provider. And uh, you know, you look at the White Sox, for example, they have tickets um i think the cheapest ticket to get in for their home opener next thursday a week from today that we're recording this uh would be uh over a hundred dollars uh that you know but white Sox home opener has always been a pretty uh you know big day for them whether or not the team's good or not it's just kind of a tradition that the fans like to pack the stadium for that day so um those tickets are certainly in high demand but if you get into later into the week you know the monday tuesday wednesday games uh, you can get into a White Sox game next week for what it looks like as low as $12. Um, and uh, for the Cubs, uh, they actually have tickets available from their box office. Uh, you know, as I'm looking at it right now, the game, again, only a few hours away, they have first party uh, straight from the Cubs tickets available still um, just a few hours before their first game. Uh, okay. so, so, yeah, it's it's kind of shaken out differently. Uh, but I, I would, I would kind of... Uh, go off of what you were saying the experience at the ballpark right now does not necessarily sound like one that you would recognize you know from a, a year's past or seasons past it's definitely better or a little bit farther along from what they did last year with the cardboard fans uh but it's oh, certainly geez. not 40 40 000 plus at wrigley on a sunny afternoon well white Sox fans have said for years that cubs fans are cardboard anyway right i mean it's the, the there's that probably wasn't too terribly different in in the eyes of of people on the south side. I'm surprised we've made it this far into the conversation, and uh, nobody has made the joke about uh, ten thousand fans being, you know, the usual White Sox attendance. <laughs> Not yet. Didn't have a chance to get there. <laughs> Dude, despite the weather and despite the mitigation and whatnot, John, I, I got to tell you, I'm still surprised. It's been a year and a half since fans have been able to go to a go to a baseball game, you know, go to Wrigley Field or whichever. Um, I'm kind of surprised that uh, the Cubs on their own have not been able to sell out the limited number of tickets that they're allowed to sell. Um, that just I, I don't know what I don't know what that means. Yeah, I mean, it was really a, a tale of two off seasons in the city of Chicago. The White Sox. We're making a bunch of moves, getting a bunch of big players, um, you know, and making a hard push towards the playoffs and hopefully a World Series this year. The Cubs came in a little bit differently. They 
sold off some of their parts and they have a pretty big uh, set of decisions to make this year with some of their young players, whether, whether to keep guys like Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, those types of names that have been, uh, you know, ingrained in Cubs fan history um, are, are kind of unknown at this point. We don't know where, where that season's going to go. So everything else working against them, it doesn't help the fact that they didn't necessarily give the fan base a whole lot of reason for optimism that this is going to be uh, a championship worthy season. You never know how it's going to play out, but you know, it's, it's still not the same attitude that, that maybe we've come to expect from the Cubs the last few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's different. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's a different kind of season for, for both of those teams. The tables have turned the White Sox are the team to watch. The Cubs are boring. Cardinals, I think are going to be a fantastic team again this year. Um, I shouldn't say the Cubs are boring. I think the Cubs are just they just haven't done a whole lot to get you excited about uh, about that ball club. They can still wind up being competitive, um, even though they have what five five number five starters in their rotation at this point. Um, yeah, they uh, they made some decisions, like I said, over the the, the off season to uh, let a guy like you Darvish get away. No more Kyle Schwarber. Um, you know, a couple different uh, bullpen arms that uh, you may have been used to seeing are no longer around. It's uh, it, it's a, it's quite a different team. But one thing I want to say about the Cardinals, you mentioned them quickly. Um, they actually have an interesting piece to this puzzle. They announced uh, just yesterday on Wednesday uh, that they reached 85 percent vaccination uh, with their traveling squad. So everybody who travels with the team, 85 percent of them have been vaccinated, according to their coach, Mike Schilt. So. Uh, what that means is the MLB has said if you reach that number, 85% of your traveling squad, they will actually lessen some of their COVID restrictions, meaning you can gather with your teammates in the clubhouse a little bit closer. You can sit next to each other on team planes. Um, you, you could just basically get a little bit more freedom. So you guys were talking about the vaccine passport. The MLB is even taking a little bit of a, uh, a backwards route into that territory where if you prove that you have a certain level of vaccinations uh, in your squad, you get your freedoms back. You get to be able to enjoy a little bit closer contact with your teammates, um, you know, and, and not have to wear a mask everywhere you go. Uh, I think they even lessen some of those mask zones uh, for a team. That's wild. Getting back to some sense of normalcy, thankfully. Well, John, I appreciate the update. It's always great to hear from you. And um, keep up the good work with Jason on state lines. Um, we got some playoff basketball and playoff hockey headed our way. Of course, the final four, um, we're, almost, uh, we're almost there. By the time this airs, I think we'll be kind of into that space. But uh, yeah, you guys are doing a great job. It's a great show, and and I know the, that your um, your fan base is growing. So congratulations. That's cool. yeah. Thank you for that. We, we're doing a a post mortem of the final four and a preview of the Masters tournament next Thursday. So we will be dropping that um, a week from today. If you're interested in checking it out at StateLines.show. That's cool. Thanks so much, John. Uh, for Dan McHale, this has been Chris Krug. You've been listening to the Illinois and Focus podcast across the Illinois radio network and broadcasting platforms around the world. Now for a look at what we'll be working on next week at the center square. I'm going to bounce past it. That was a basketball reference over to Greg Bishop.
next week. Both chambers of the Illinois legislature are still on spring break, but continue to hold virtual hearings. They're expected to continue reviewing budget requests from various state agencies and also hold more hearings about redrawing Illinois' political boundaries. The team from the center square will be there to bring you the very latest. This has been Illinois in Focus. For more Illinois stories and commentary online, visit thecentersquare.com. For the Center Square, Illinois, I'm Greg Bishop.